It's just hard to be healthy in the U.S. today. It is hard to maintain a healthy diet. It is hard to get enough physical activity in our days. It's hard to get enough sleep and get enough sleep consistently. It's hard to make friends. It's hard to to find the time to to spend to maintain relationships and to lead a full social life. Welcome to the other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. Today, we're going to zoom way, way out and discuss how our modern way of living is actually making us sick. Supersized meals are easy to consume in a drive through without even walking from the parking lot to the door. Our eyes are glued to streaming services while our bodies are glued to the couch. In today's ever on culture, we are spending more and more time alone rather than in community. I don't say this to shame anyone. Expecting someone to lead a healthy lifestyle in our modern world is like asking someone to swim fast against an unbelievably strong current. It's almost impossible. But what if the products we use every day could help us stay healthy rather than drag us further and further downstream? That's what Steve Downs is trying to do with Building H, examining how the products we use every day are making us sick and how we could turn it all around to build health into everyday life. So please welcome Steve Downs to The Other 80. Well, I'm going to take you back a few years first, because I think when I first met you, you were serving as the chief technology officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And in a time when the organization was going through a really big shift to focus on the culture of health. And I'd love for you to take us back to that time and walk us through what did that mean for the organization and its priorities? And how might that have laid down some of the foundation for the conversation we're about to have? Yeah. So this was probably, oh, it's probably 10 years ago now that we went into a a strategic planning process. We came out of that process with a few different insights. And and one of them was a recognition that we've been working on individual big public health problems. So things like how to do something about child obesity, how to make sure that every American had health insurance coverage, how to improve the quality of healthcare. There was sort of this recognition that if we didn't address some of those problems further upstream, deeper in the roots, that whatever successes we might have in them might be transitory or, or, or not sustainable over the long term or not large enough. And some of it led to, to a much stronger emphasis on health equity, a much stronger emphasis on social determinants of health. But this idea that every sector influences health, whether that's education or, or housing or transportation or all of these different sectors, how do we get them to embrace health and, and to have a more intentionally, more positive impact on health? And around the time, Thomas Getz had joined the foundation as, in, uh, as an entrepreneur in residence. Thomas had been a, uh, an executive editor at Wired Magazine, and we'd gotten to know him there. And so Thomas and I were spending a lot of time talking about this, this question, and, and he had really 
thought very deeply about it and thought about how it's not necessarily these sort of new technologies, these apps and wearables that have the biggest impact on health. If you think historically, it's the big technologies. It's things like, like automobiles and televisions and computers and smartphones that have created a society that shapes behavior very fundamentally. Thomas also uh, got me to read a terrific book, which is The Story of the Human Body by, uh, by Daniel Lieberman. Lieberman is, a, is an evolutionary biologist at Harvard. And reading this was actually transformative for me. Lieberman creates this context where he says, you know, we have to recognize that humans have evolved essentially into the lifestyle or into the environments of hunter-gatherers, right? We are actually, from an evolutionary perspective, optimized for that lifestyle. And yet we've built a world that is far, far from that, right? We've built an incredible modern world with all of its miracles and wonder, but we're not well suited for this world when it comes to health. And, and, and then it goes on to sort of say that all of these chronic diseases that we now see in spades, you know, whether that's heart disease or depression or obesity, diabetes, all of these, he argues, are really this result from this mismatch between how we're involved and the world that we've created and now live in. But I started really getting very interested in this topic. And so I, I had a chance to sort of explore those ideas a bit. And the more I did, the more I became convinced that this is just something I need to work on all the time. <laughs> you know, this shouldn't be a side hustle. I left the foundation in, in 2020 and Thomas and I sort of spun up Building H and I've been working on that full time since. In a minute, we'll talk directly about Building H, but I actually want to read a vignette of something that you are quoted as saying as a lead up to that, because I think it really starkly contextualizes this conversation where you said very eloquently, we are all swimming upstream to be healthy every day. So swimming upstream to be healthy. And we are swimming upstream against the currents of modern life. Our response is to tell people to swim harder. But what would it take to reverse the direction of the river? What if health actually resulted from our everyday life? But let's talk about those currents. What are those currents in our society? And what are some of the stats and facts that should grab everybody's attention about how life has shifted? Yeah, it's just hard to be healthy in the U.S. today. It is hard to maintain a healthy diet. It is hard to get enough physical activity in our days. It's hard to get enough sleep and get enough sleep consistently. It's hard to make friends. It's yeah. hard to, to find the time to, to spend to maintain relationships and to lead a full social life. If you think about diet, I think the last thing number that I saw measured on this was, was Americans consume about 3,600 calories a day, which is up about 35% since 1960. And 60% of our calories come from ultra-processed foods. And actually for children and teens, that's 70%. I think about 25% of Americans get the recommended amount of physical activity each week. Sleep is an area that, that really worries me. The CDC says six hours or less on average of sleep is, is really troublesome. It's associated with a whole number of, of different diseases. In 1960, 2% of Americans got less than six hours a night of sleep on average. That number is now about 35%. Wow. 
and there's a, there's a terrible income and racial disparities around sleep as well. Uh, so that's that's becoming even more of a justice issue. And you know, we're also in an epidemic of loneliness, right? As, as the Surgeon General has made made amply clear. But there's some data from the American Time Use Survey that says that the amount of time we spend socially interacting with others in a given week has dropped by 20%. Wow. Yeah, from 2003 to 2019. And that's pre-pandemic. You know, so that's been dropping as well. What's happened is all of these behaviors gradually, steadily have been eroding over time. And, and that's, that's sort of run in parallel with these, the rise of all these chronic diseases. Maybe just to set up Building H a little bit, the premise you and Thomas set out to demonstrate was that the products that we use every day, to your point, the big technology, have an outsized impact on the environment in which we choose behaviors and our behaviors themselves. And that if you could go about and examine, closely examine that what you call product environment and in a transparent way, share that with those companies, that we could start to engage in conversations about shifts to those products, shifts in choices among products. So to talk a little bit about that, you know, you and Thomas were there at, at RWJ um, hatching this concept. Well, how did it start to gel for you and the kind of first shape of it? I mean, if you think about it, this is a very big ambitious concept, right? What essentially as we're saying is that the products and services of everyday life fundamentally shape people's behavior, you know, at a population level and are shaping it, unfortunately, in many cases for the worse, at least in aggregate, they're shaping it for the worse. And so how do you go about shifting that? That's obviously huge. In, in some ways, the first thing was really just to get the idea on the map Right. I mean, so this is not the way people typically think about health today and not the typical way they typically think about let's get innovation and technology to, to solve problems. So part of it was just starting with the evangelizing of it. Right. You know, can we articulate it? Can we write stuff about it? Can we start building a community of people who, who sort of get the idea, who want to hear more about it, who want to get engaged in it? But we also needed something that would much make it much more sort of concrete tangible, here and now, and actionable. And that's where we wound up coming up with the idea for the Building H Index. We thought about it in the context of health impact assessments. That's the idea that's typically done in uh, either a big public works project or a big policy. From every aspect of health, how might this affect health? And how could you do the project in a way that would optimize health? Similar things you can do, you can do health impact assessments on things like minimum wage policies. And so we started kicking this idea around. So what if we did it for companies? You know, or, or more specifically, what if we did it for products? And so that created the Building H Index. And we did a very rough, quick proof of concept that we slapped on the website towards the end of 2020. We were excited that we got a, an honorable mention from Fast Company as a, as a world-changing idea. And then we, we sort of set out to sort of do it on a larger scale. And then so now we have, have done a major release of that in, in April 22 that, that covered 37 major products and services. Um, and we are hard at work on, on a new iteration that we expect to have out in the first quarter of next year, which actually doubles that to 75 products and services and adds in a lot of industries that we hadn't before. So I'm curious, what was your theory of change for how 
that work would actually shift the river, so to speak, or the the context for healthy behavior. It's several several elements to that. Um, one is is remember we needed to articulate this big idea and get it on the map, and so part of it is it, it really does open up that discussion, right? It takes. It takes the, oh, yeah, products can affect how we behave, and sometimes that's not positive, to here's how Netflix affects sleep, here's how it affects your eating habits, here's how it affects your social life, you know, that sort of thing. Makes it very real and and starts to make it very, very clear and furthers that discussion. And what it does is it makes concrete the idea that these products really do have impact on health behavior. It's not a theoretical and in many cases, it's impact on more health behaviors than you would expect. You know, so for example, we all know that fast food restaurants affect our diets. That's not news. But we actually saw they had pretty negative effects on social interaction, on sleep, and on physical activity, and, and even time spent outdoors. And, and so that was another eye-opener. A second piece is to actually engage these companies. Right. I mean, these are some of the most influential companies in the world. They are the most influential companies in terms of how we, we spend our days right. and, and that sort of thing. Right. And so getting on their radar, getting them to understand that they are having an impact in ways they probably didn't recognize, you know, for a lot of these companies. We often joke that we're giving them a pop quiz on a subject they didn't know they were taking. Because these are not health companies. We're talking about companies like like Uber, like Netflix, DoorDash, uh, you know, Google Maps is you know, a product that we that we looked at. So getting them engaged, and our process does very much in, in, engage them, uh, so they could see where they they have maybe a potential vulnerability, or in some cases, and because not everything we see is negative, right? You know, a potential thing that they could use to their advantage. So that's another piece. The third piece. I would say in this is laying the groundwork for a different conversation and potentially ultimately different approaches to product regulation. And so if we think about consumer product regulation, product regulation as we know it is centered around safety ultimately, right? You want to make sure that that when you use a product, you don't have a, a high chance of some terrible injury that comes from using it, or that it's you know clearly toxic, right? And you're ingesting something that that could could harm you quite significantly. That makes sense in a lot of contexts, but in a behavior-driven chronic disease epidemic, where the influences on behavior sort of aggregate and compound. So the way I would I would describe this is, you know, McDonald's is not responsible for all the food-related chronic illnesses in America. But you might argue that they are, I don't know, 1.7% responsible or 3.8% responsible. And so this is a different way to think about product regulation. And I think we ultimately need to get to a place where if your product is leading to unhealthy behaviors, which is leading to illness and disease and cost, there may need to be some accountability for that. And again, that's a long-term proposition, but what I think we're trying to do is create some building blocks where people can start to look at that and say, you know, that's not a crazy way to think about that. And there may be ways to actually do that. 
I think the way we typically think about regulation maps much more back to the take that product off the market, it's harmful. And so if you think about the FDA that regulates drugs and and foods, those are its tools, right? It's on the market, it's off the market. So I think as you think about this kind of other form of regulation, it's probably not the FDA, right? It's probably, maybe it's health insurers, maybe it's taxation systems that internalize the externalities. Who would that even be? Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I would say, uh, I don't know that we've gotten as far as, as sort of, you know, what's the right agency so much as to say, and you said the magic word there, which is externality, right? So the the impact, the influence of a product on on unhealthy behavior, you could argue, is an externality. And so the question is, how do you start making that externality expensive to the company? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's again, that's not an easy question. But I think what we're arguing is that it is an externality that can be measured. And if you can measure that externality, then you can start to think about what do you want to do about that. Yeah. But I think what we're trying to do is to lay lay the groundwork for a different way to think about the way products affect people's health. And it's interesting, you know, think about the parallel to the climate and carbon reporting. And a friend of mine actually just successfully brought this legislation through California is requiring carbon reporting of companies. So you could see that maybe this moves also from voluntary to some kind of public reporting system, which then could be tied to taxation or other financial incentives. Well, and and to that point, there's a uh, terrific group that spun out of Harvard Business School called the International Foundation for Valuing Impact. And they actually created something called impact-weighted accounts. And, And essentially what they are doing is developing the framework for financial statements in which social impact is quantified. Huh. So instead wow. of instead of, you know, a nice happy ESG report, again, nothing against nice happy ESG reports, a company would say here's our here's our revenue, here's our expenses, here's kind of our capital, uh, all, all the typical things you would see in a financial accounting statement. And here's our quantified in dollars and cents impact on the environment, here's our quantified impact in dollars and cents on labor, here's our impact on health. Here's our impact on dot, dot, dot. And so I think actually that approach of disclosure first could get very interesting. And, and so right now, you know, with the, the Building H Index, we sort of do a more of a qualitative assessment that then has a process that ultimately gets a score. But we're actually doing a proof of concept. We got some funding from the National Academy of Medicine to say, can we take that approach a step further and actually, for a handful of companies, try to estimate the dollars and cents impact that they're having. Can you take, let's say, a fast food restaurant, do an analysis of the ingredients in its, let's say, featured products, and some estimate of you know sort of how much they're selling, how much people are consuming, and actually say, look, based on this, you know, this is how many grams of excess sodium hit the public. It's a, a 10% increase in cardiac disease due to excess sodium. So if they produce this amount of excess sodium, we can then tie that to a certain amount of cardiac disease cases, and we know how much that's costing the country. Interesting. Um, so you could, I mean, again, it, this is this is very beginnings of this kind of thing. But what we're what we are trying to explore through this project is is can we feasibly start to estimate real cost? associated with with consumption of a product. 
So one of the things you mentioned is the desire when results come out to actually engage with companies in a meaningful way around changes they could make. So that presumes that A, you can get the attention of the leaders and B, they're interested in having that conversation. So let's talk first about the bright spots. Where have you found that companies have really been eager to sit down and talk and and what has resulted from that? And then we'll talk about places where that may not be so easy. So, so I should say uh, our our process includes um, a few things around engaging companies. Uh, one is we reach out to them at the start of the process to say, "Hey, we're going to do this analysis of this product and its impact on on five different health behaviors. We have some questions for you that that if you're able to give us some answers, that that'll help our analysis." And then when we've done our preliminary assessment, we share that with the companies and say, "Hey, did we get did we make any factual errors here?" Do you disagree with anything we've concluded? Um, are, is there other things that you want us to be aware of that are relevant? And then when we're, when we're done and it's published, we offer to sit down and, and brief them. And so some of them ignore us, no question about it. Many of them do engage at one level or, or another. And, and it's interesting. It's been all over the map. In some ways, it's almost not a, um, neither the size of the company mm. nor, let's say, how they score you know, has been a predictor of who participates more with us. But we want to be really constructive with this. This isn't about just saying, ha ha, gotcha, you know, you're doing a bad thing. This is about saying, here's where the product is right now. And here are a few things that you could consider as changes to the product that would yield, you know, a better result on on this behavior or that behavior. We're, we try to be humble about this. I mean, we're not their product managers. Right? right. I mean, the other thing that's been cool is that a number of the things that we recommended in our 2022 release, uh, we're actually starting to see happen in some of the products. I'm not going to say that's because they read our report, they took it to heart, and they immediately got a team to, to change things. Um, but it is nice to have been on record as to saying, these are some things that could happen that would be positive, and to see some of those come true. Could you give some examples? A simple one is autoplay in video streaming services. I mean, let's face it, autoplay is not a great thing. It gets people to spend more time watching TV, not getting up um, and, and staying up late and not sleeping. And when we did our assessment uh, in, in 2022, we found that I think there was only one company that would even allow the user to turn that off in settings. Huh. Right. It wasn't just on by default. It was just on and it wasn't going anywhere. And, and we made a, a big deal about this, right? We just said, you know, hey, either turn it off completely or allow people to change it or turn it off for children. You know, I mean, you can, <laughs> there are things you can right. do here. And now, as I said, I, virtually every streaming service allows you at least to turn it off in settings. I would love for them to go further, but that's progress. Um, for grocery delivery services, we had suggested, could you have a party planning feature? So if you want to try to build oh. more social connection, you know, make it easy for people to have a bunch of people over, sort of facilitate that. And uh, and I think uh, Shipt, which is Target's delivery service, has, has since uh, shipped that feature. It strikes me that you sort of have an individual company behavior and then you have regulation. There could also be an approach that encourages companies to work collaboratively and just say, let's all agree we're not going to do X thing. So it's t- kind of taken off the table as a competitive item around the product. I'm curious whether that's either happened organically or whether you've explored that option. We haven't yet. 
I mean, some of our recommendations do suggest that sort of um, approach, but we haven't really tried to, let's say, get a group to come to the table and say, everybody, everybody do this. I mean, the interesting thing we did find is that in so many of these different product categories, everybody pretty much does the product the same way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it, it is this interesting thing where if, if one of them does it, you may see a lot of the others follow suit fairly quickly. Um, yeah. My older son is considering becoming a Buddhist monk and he's in Thailand. And hmm. I'm really struck at how the parameters of that are geared toward what you're talking about um, in terms of limiting access to certain kinds of technology, creating a community where you're actually dependent on your local geographic community for alms, for food. The sleep one, they don't do so well because you have to wake up at four <laughs> in the morning. But I, And I guess where that leads me is I am 100% agreeing that we place far too much focus on individual behaviors and not on the environments. But I also am curious about groups of people that collectively choose to change their environment, people who move into intentional communities. Are there opportunities to use this information, not at the individual racing to try to go upstream, but really to shift intentionality in groups of people to a different place? So It's interesting. Where I go to with that, sort of the first example I think of that is um, a company that whose, whose work actually landed it in the very top position in the Building H Index in 2022. And that's a company called Cul-de-Sac. Um, and if you've heard of them, they are a, a real estate startup that is has built now uh, a, a car-free community in Tempe, Arizona. So just outside of Phoenix. It's, um, I can't remember the total number, but it's, I think, ultimately going to be, you know, room for a thousand residents in this apartment community where you cannot own or keep a personal automobile in the community. There's a little bit of parking for visitors who want to come see you. There is uh, public transit, you know, on the doorstep. There are uh, tons and tons of shared bikes and scooters available. But they created this place, which is um, filled with social spaces. It is, you know, has, has you know, grocery store on the premises, restaurants, they really wanted to create this this walkable, very social, very sort of outdoorsy environment. Our index actually covers five behaviors, eating, physical activity, sleep, social connection, and spending time outdoors. And then they, they did they well enough. It. They aced it, right? They really <laughs> aced it. Um, and so, but what's interesting is as, you know, they're attracting people who are self-selecting into that lifestyle, who are saying, that's what I want. Out, yeah. of, out of where I live. And so I think you, we may start to see more of that. Where you live is probably the yeah. biggest consumer choice about lifestyle in terms of, uh, of product. I mean, obviously where you live doesn't determine whether Netflix is playing or not, but it does determine a lot about whether your lifestyle is very walkable and, and what your food choices are like. I think this concept of individual agency and choice is very deep in our culture and our history and also tends to get a little bit labeled with blue and red colors. And I'm curious how to have this conversation in a way that doesn't become politicized around individuals and choice and collective. 
I don't know about how to avoid the politicization of that. And I don't mean to imply when I say there's a product environment that, that deeply shapes our behaviors. I don't mean to imply that we don't have any agency and that everyone is, is sort of hereby absolved of, of any choice they ever make at, at, at any time. But I really don't have a lot of patience for blaming people for choices that have been engineered to, to obtain a certain outcome. When you have armies of designers and behavioral scientists and engineers creating systems that push us to extra consumption, whether it's the notifications and the endless scrolls, whether it's the upselling and the cross-selling at checkouts. Um, if you think about the bliss point, <laughs> that perfect perfect balance of sugar, salt, and fat that makes us crave right. another bite that, that chemists spent years Doritos, perfecting. yes. <laughs> so I think to the extent that, again, you know, some of the best and brightest minds are stacking the deck to try to ensure a certain amount of, of consumer choice in a certain direction. I think to then just say, hey, it's, you know, it's everybody's choice, it's free will. I, I think that's disingenuous, you know, honestly. It's hard to know how to cross the political divide on that, but I just think that it's simply a case that we have to acknowledge that if you tilt the playing field in a certain direction, the balls are going to roll to one side. As I imagine starting a company and, and knowing about your work, it's intriguing to think about starting fresh and saying, like cul-de-sac did, how could we actually engineer this in the right direction? And I think with housing, there are a lot of just positive externalities that come from creating housing in a certain way. It's a lot more challenging if we're talking about streaming services, whose basic core product is trying to get us to stay in one place on our couch, <laughs> yeah. right? And maybe that just speaks that there are going to be different dynamics in different parts of the economy, some very positive and like kind of dramatically moving a different direction and some tweaks. Yeah. So there, there are a couple of thoughts on that. One is you're, you're absolutely right about something like streaming service. I mean, in the end, it's about watching television and watching television is never going to be a super healthy activity. Now, I should also say there's nothing wrong with watching television. Television's great. There's right. so much great television. Right. Fantastic. There's, you know, it, it, uh, you know, personally, I love it. Right. I think the issue is about how do we not sort of over consume, you know, uh, a number of these things. But, but my point is with something like television, as I said, it's never going to be super healthy, but there are healthier versions of it. Right. So a Netflix that doesn't, you know, sort of focus on autoplay, a Netflix that that asks you when you when you set it up, when do you like to go to bed each mm -hmm. night and, and how can we help you do that? That's sort of a Netflix that says, hey, we care about you. You know, we want this to be a good experience in every way. So there are better versions of that. The other thing, though, I would say is. Again, if you think back to the beginnings of this conversation, that it's about big technologies, transformative technologies, is to think beyond the tweaks. If you take something like entertainment, we have been sort of in this paradigm of the way to be entertained is to sit on a couch and look at a screen, whether that was a smallish screen, a giant screen, or now a little handheld screen. Um, that is what we define as entertainment. And so I would love to see a Netflix or a Netflix competitor 
say, we're not in the, you know, sit on the couch and watch a screen business. We're in the entertainment business. And what could that look like? What could an entertainment, a mode of entertainment that is maybe more physical, more social, more social, you know, mm-hmm. um, maybe more outdoors, <laughs> you know, or whatever. What Sounds like a festival. Like? Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, I mean it, what, what is it? Yeah, yeah, but but I think I think that's the kind of inspiration that we want to see, which is to say we can do better than just kinder, gentler streaming service. We can really reimagine entertainment in each of these industries. I think it's possible to say, you know, again, push ourselves a little further beyond where we are right now, and say, what what should we aim for? Here. We've been doing a little of this. We have a, a, a relationship with the University of Washington Department of Human Centered Design and Engineering, where we've had students do speculative design projects. Because what we want to do is to say, what might good look like in some of these areas? So we're trying to trying to do some work with them. And we've, we've got a few projects under our belt. But we don't want to just say, hey, what, what's here today is, is not great. We want to say, it could be better in more imaginative ways. I'm going to wrap up with two questions. It's been a wonderful conversation. So this is the part where you help me with my job. (laughs) I'm really excited to join the team at the Berkeley School of Public Health as the Chief Social Impact Officer. And I'm excited. And you will be on my speed dial, hopefully. How can universities, and specifically schools of public health, be more impactful in creating the conditions of health in America? So I would love for schools of public health to jump on this issue of the product environment. There is an interesting burgeoning movement, I think, in public health around what's, what's being termed the commercial determinants of health. It, it takes different forms. The work that we're doing around the product environment sort of fits within that umbrella. But uh, I, I think it is an underexplored topic for research and for action. I think what's interesting about how we put together the Building H Index, you know, as we try to to look at how different types of products influence different health behaviors, one of the first things we look at is is the research out there. Mm-hmm. What do we know about things? We have questions like, do e-bikes lead to more bike riding than regular bikes? And in many cases, we can find good research studies. In a lot of cases, these are just good unanswered questions. Um, and so I think understanding that products and services of everyday life collectively form an environment that has such an important influence on health. I think we need to put much more research and measurement on, on the ways in which it does that. And then I think, you know, taking more action, the kind of work that we're doing, I don't think our long-term vision is to say, we want to be the one organization that does everything on this topic. Right? What we're trying to do is to say, this stuff matters. It can be measured it ought to be measured and we can do creative things with it once we do measure it. So we want more people doing that kind of work, more people who do research that is aimed at having an application that it kind of lands in, right? So in other words, it's not just, this is an interesting question, which is I think often a good reason to do research, but we need to figure out if this is true because we can use it in this way. Yes. If yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know that, and so because because if we have that information, we can plug it in to this approach. Yeah. You know, so I think I think that could be really helpful. Um, it might as be well. if you have not already done it. It might be useful to have a prospectus of research questions you'd love answered mm. or addressed. 
that's an interesting, yes. My final question, which I ask every guest is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? Oh, I think it's it's pretty unoriginal, but I think it's sort of one or more variations of the story where you can draw up a different way of doing things that makes plenty of logical sense and ultimate sense for whatever enterprise you're working in, but that asks individuals to do things that don't work for them. In some ways, it doesn't matter how good the idea is. You know, I I think that's always a, a really challenging situation. And, you know, there's an element to this work, you know, that is, that is challenging in the sense that in the game that we have now, it's not always going to make sense for a company to put their money behind health. Mm -hmm. And so that, that really does then raise the question of how do we tweak the game so that it does make sense for them. How do we tweak the game? How do we make it expensive for a company to to ultimately have a negative health impact or make it super attractive for them to have a positive health impact? Because we can, we can, you know, we can make it clear where a company is is doing well or doing poorly as it comes to, you know, the health of their customers. But we can't always make it matter. Mm-hmm. And, and and it has to matter. Others on the podcast have talked about the challenges with the economies we have and do we need to make more fundamental shifts to the way we structure, regulate, incentivize the economy? And that's <laughs> that's an even bigger question. Yeah. But it's I it, think it, we it naturally we lead ourselves there. I think it comes back to the what you said earlier about about externalities. The reality is we have a system that works brilliantly at so many different things and, and kind of falls down in a few key areas, really key areas, <laughs> uh, like carbon in the environment um, and like impact on health of products on health. And so figuring out, are there ways that we can make some adaptations that enable us to, to do better on, on, on things that I think we know now more and more really matter. Mm. But yeah, that's a long conversation. <laughs> An ongoing conversation. <laughs> so, Annie, it's so wonderful to talk to you, and I really look forward to continuing the conversation. If you've listened to The Other 80, you'll know this isn't the first time we've discussed the negative effects of capitalism on health. And yes, it's easy to argue that because of capitalism... We now live in a world where everything we could ever need is right at our fingertips. So maybe we just need to live with the consequences. But that seems pretty fatalistic when we consider how sick the modern world is making us. And these are not just individual decisions. These outcomes are shaped by the very world we live in and the products we use every day. So let's try a thought experiment. What would it look like to use all the tools of society to create products and environments that make us happier and healthier, not sicker and more miserable?
This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information about Steve Downs and Building H. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. Claudia Williams.